Chapter Seventeen of the Ranchman by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Wrong Ankle. Bud Hemingway, the tall, red-faced young puncher who had assisted Quinton Taylor in the sprained ankle deception, saw the dawn breaking through one of the windows of the bunkhouse when he suddenly opened his eyes after dreaming of steaming flapjacks soaked in the syrup he liked best. He stretched out on his back in the wall bunk and licked his lips. Lordy, I'm hungry. But he decided to rest for a few minutes while he considered the cook away with the outfit to a distant corner of the range. He reflected bitterly that the cook was away most of the time, and that a man fared considerably better with the outfit than he did by staying at the home ranch. For one thing, when a man was with the outfit, he got grub without having to rustle it himself. That was why it was better to be with the outfit. A man don't get nothing to eat at all, scarcely, when he's got to rustle his own grub, mourned Bud. He's got the appetite, all right, but he don't know how to wrestle the ingredients which goes into good grub. Take them flapjacks now. He licked his lips again. They're scrumptious. But that damned hyena, which slings grub for the outfit, won't tell a man how he makes them. Which greediness is going to get him into a heap of trouble some day. When I get so hungry that I feel a heap reckless. Bud watched the dawn broaden. He knew he ought to get up, for this was the day on which Marion Harlan was to visit the Arrow. And Taylor had warned him to be on hand early to bandage the ankle again. Taylor having decided that not enough time had elapsed to effect a cure. But Bud did not get up until a glowing shaft of light entering the window warned him that the sun was soon to appear above the horizon. Then he bounded out of the bunk and lurched heavily to an east window. What he saw when he looked out made him gasp for breath and hang hard to the windowsill, while his eyes bulged and widened with astonishment. For upon the porch of the ranch house, seated in the identical chairs in which they had sat during their previous visit, were Marion Harlan and the Negro woman. Bud stepped back from the window and rubbed his eyes. Then he went to the window again and looked with all his vision, and then a grin covered his face. For the two women seemed to be asleep. Bud would have sworn they were asleep, for the negress was hunched up in her chair, a big, almost shapeless black mass, with her chin hidden in the swell of her ample bosom, while the girl was leaning back, her figure slack with the utter relaxation that accompanies deep sleep, her eyes closed and her hat a little awry. Bud was certain she was asleep, for no girl in her waking moments would permit her hat to rest upon her head in that negligent manner. Bud scratched his head many times while hurriedly getting into his clothing. I'm betting they didn't wait for flapjacks this morning, he confided to himself mentally. Must like it here a heap, he reflected. Well, there's nothing like getting an early start when you're going anywhere, he grinned. Stealthily, he opened the door of the bunkhouse, watching furtively as he stepped out, lest he be seen, 
and then when he noted that the women did not move, he darted across the yard, vaulted the corral fence, ran around the corner of the ranch house, carefully opened a rear door, and presently stood beside a bed, gently shaking its tousle-haired occupant. "'Get up, you suffering fool,' he whispered hoarsely. "'They're here.' Taylor's eyes snapped open and were fixed on Bud with a resentful glare, which instantly changed to reserved amusement when he saw Bud's bulging eyes and general evidence of suppressed excitement. He yawned sleepily, stretching his arms wide. "'The outfit, huh? Well, tell Bothwell I'll see him.' "'Bothwell, hell,' sneered Bud. "'It ain't the outfit. It ain't no damn range boss. It's her, I tell you. And if you're figuring on getting that ankle bandaged before—' "'That starts your running, huh?' he jeered. For Taylor was out of bed with one leap. In another, he had Bud by the shoulders— and had crowded him back against the wall. But, he said, I have a notion to manhandle you. Didn't I tell you to have me up early? Get your fingers out of my windpipe, objected Bud. Early? Suffering shorthorns? Did you want me to get you up last night? It's only four now, and they've been here for hours, I reckon. Maybe all night. How's a man to know anything about a woman? Taylor was getting into his clothes. Bud watched him, marveling at his death's movements. "'You're sure a wolf at hustling when she's around,' he offered. But he got no reply. Taylor was dressed in a miraculously short time. And then he sat down on the edge of the bed and stuck a foot out toward Bud. "'Shut up and get the bandage on,' he directed. Bud dove for a dresser and pulled out a drawer, returning instantly with a roll of white cloth, which he unfolded as he knelt beside the bed. For an instant after kneeling, he scratched his head, looking at Taylor's feet in perplexity, and then he looked up at Taylor, his face thoughtfully furrowed. "'Which ankle was it I banished before?' he demanded. "'I forgot.' Taylor groaned. He, too, had forgotten. Since he had talked with Neil Norton about the ankle directly after the fight with Carrington in front of the courthouse, he had tried in vain to remember which ankle he had banished for Miss Harlan's benefit. Driven to the necessity of making a quick decision, his brain became a mere muddle of desperate conjecture. Out of the muddle sprang a disgust for Bud, for his poor memory. "'You forgot,' he blurted at Bud. "'Why, damn it!' You ought to know which one it was. You bandaged it. Well, grinned Bud gleefully. It was your ankle, wasn't it? Strikes me that if I busted one of my ankles, I wouldn't forget which one it was. Leastway, if I busted it, just to hang around a girl. Taylor sneered scornfully. You wouldn't bust an ankle for a girl. You ain't got backbone enough. Hell, he exploded. Do something. Take a chance and bandage one of them. I don't care a damn which one. If she noticed the other time, I'll tell her that one was cured and I busted the other one. She'll know you was lying, grinned Bud, but he stood erect, his eyes alight with an inspiration. Wrap up both of them, he suggested. If she goes to getting curious, which she will, being a woman, tell her you busted both of them. It won't do, objected Taylor. I couldn't lie that heavy and keep a straight face. Bud, 
began to wrap the left ankle. As he worked, the doubt in his eyes began to fade and was succeeded by conviction. When he finished, he stood up and grinned at Taylor. That's the one, he said, the left, I mind now, that we talked about it. You go right out to her limpin' the same as you done before, and she'll not say a word about it. You'll see. Taylor grunted disbelievingly and hobbled to the front door. He looked back at Bud, who was snickering, made a malicious grimace at him, and softly opened the door. Miss Harlan had been asleep, but she was not asleep when Taylor opened the door. Indeed, she was never more wide awake in her life. At the sound of the door opening, she turned her head and sat stiffly erect to face Taylor. Taylor looked apologetically at his ankle, his cheeks tinged with a flush of embarrassment. This ankle, ma'am, it ain't quite well yet. You'll excuse me not being gone. But Bud, that's my friend, says it won't be quite right for a few days yet. But I won't be in your way, and I hope you enjoy yourself. Miss Harlan was enjoying herself. She was enjoying herself despite the shadow of tragedy that had almost descended upon her and mirth, routing the bitter, resentful emotions that had dwelt in her heart during the night, twitched mightily at her lips and threatened to curve them into a smile. For during her last visit to the Arrow, she had noted particularly that it had been Taylor's right ankle which had been bandaged, and now he appeared before her with the left swathed in white cloth. But even had she not known, Taylor's face must have told her of the deception, for there was guilt in his eyes and doubt and a sort of breathless speculation, and she was certain an intense curiosity to discover whether or not she was aware of the trick. But she looked straight at him, betraying nothing of the emotions that had seized her. "'Does it pain you very much?' she inquired. Had not Taylor been so eager to make his case strong, he might have noted the exceeding light sarcasm of her voice. "'It hurts a heap, ma'am,' he declared. "'Why, last night?' I shouldn't think it would be necessary to lie about an ankle, she said coldly. Taylor's face went crimson, and in his astonishment he stepped heavily upon the traitor foot and stood, convicted before her, looking very much like a reproved schoolboy. She rose from her chair, and now she turned from Taylor and stood looking out over the big level while behind her Taylor shifted his feet, scowled, and felt decidedly uncomfortable. From where Taylor watched her, she looked very rigid and indignant, with her head proudly erect and her shoulders squared, and he could almost feel that her eyes were flashing with resentment. Yet, had he been able to see her face, he would have seen her lips twitching and her eyes dancing with a light that might have puzzled him for she had already forgiven him. There's lies and lies, he offered palliatively, breaking a painful silence. There was no answer, and Taylor, desperately in earnest in his desire for forgiveness, and looking decidedly funny to Bud Hemingway, who was watching from the interior of the room beyond the open door, walked across the porch with no suspicion of a limp 
and halted near the girl. "'Shucks, Miss Harlan,' he said. "'I'm sure caught, and I'm admitting it was a sort of mean trick to pull off on you. But if you wanted to be near a girl you had taken a shine to, that you liked a whole lot, I mean, Miss Harlan, and you couldn't think of any good excuse to be around her, you couldn't blame a man for that, could you? Besides, he added, when peering at the side of her face, he saw the twitching lips ready to break into a smile. I'll make it up to you. How? It was a strained voice that answered him. By manhandling Bud Hemingway for wrapping up the wrong ankle, ma'am, he declared. Both heard a cackle of mirth from the room behind them, and both turned to see Bud Hemingway retreating through a door into the kitchen. It might have been Bud's action that brought the smile to Miss Harlan's face, or it might have been that she had forgiven Taylor, but at any rate, Taylor read the smile correctly, and he succeeded in looking properly repentant when he felt Miss Harlan's gaze upon him. "'I won't play any more tricks on you,' he declared. "'You ain't holding it against me.' "'If you'll promise not to harm Bud,' she said. "'That goes,' he agreed, and went into the house to get his discarded boot. When he reappeared, Miss Harlan was again seated in the chair. Swiftly her thoughts had reverted to the incident of the night before, and her face was wan and pale, and her lips pressed tightly together in a brave effort to repress the emotions that rioted within her. In spite of her courage and of her determination not to let Taylor know of what had happened to her, her eyes were moist and her lips quivering. He stepped close to her and peered sharply at her, standing erect instantly, his face grave. "'Shucks,' he said accusingly. "'I wouldn't be called hospitable, now would I, standing here, talking a lot of nonsense. And you? You must have started early to get here by this time.' Again, he flashed a keen glance at her, and his voice leaped. "'Something has happened, Miss Harlan. What is it?' She got up again and faced him, smiling, her eyes shining mistily through the moisture in them. She was almost on the verge of tears, and her voice was tremulous when she answered. Mr. Taylor, I... I have come to ask you if you still... if your offer about the arrow is still open, if I could stay here myself and Martha. If I could accept the offer you made about giving me father's share of the arrow... For, for I can't go back east to Westwood, and I won't stay in the Huggins house a minute longer. Sure, he said with a grim smile, aware of her profound emotion, aware, too, that something had gone terribly wrong with her, to make her accept what she had once considered charity, an offer made out of his regard for her father. But look here, he added, what's wrong? There's something. Plenty, Mr. Squint. This was Martha. She had been awake for some little time, sitting back with her eyes closed, listening. She was now sitting erect, her eyes shining with eagerness to tell all she knew of the night's happenings. Plenty, Mr. Squint, she repeated, paying no attention to Miss Harlan's sharp Martha. That big rapscallion, Carrington, has been making things mighty miserable for Missy Harlan. He come to the house last night, 
and bust down the door, trying to get at Missy, and she run away from him like a whitehead. Then, when he finds he can't discover where I hid Missy, he runs the horses off, and we have to walk here. That's all, Mr. Squint, exceptin' that me and Missy don't stay in that house no more, if we have to walk east all the way. Miss Harlan saw a flash light Taylor's eyes, saw the flash recede to be replaced by a chilling glow. And his lips grew straight and stiff, two hard lines pressed firmly together. She saw his chest swell and noted the tenseness of his muscles as he stepped closer to her. "'Was your uncle there with you, Miss Harlan?' She nodded and saw his lips curve with a mirthless smile. "'What did Carrington do?' The passion in his voice made an icy shiver run over her. She felt the terrible earnestness that had come over him, and a pulse of fear gripped her. She had never felt more like crying than at this instant, and until this minute she had not known how deeply she had been affected by Carrington's conduct, nor how tired she was, nor how she yearned for the sympathy Taylor was giving her. But she felt that something in Taylor's manner portended violence, and she did not want him to risk his life fighting Carrington for her. You see, she explained, Mr. Carrington, did not really do anything. He just came there, and he was impertinent and impudent and insulting. And he told me that he had bought the house, that it didn't belong to Uncle, though I thought it did, and that the people of Dawes and everywhere would think things about me, as the people of Westwood had thought. And I... I... I just couldn't stay. That's enough, Miss Harlan. So Carrington didn't do anything. His voice was vibrant with some sternly repressed passion. So you walked all the way here. You've had no breakfast, he said shortly. He turned toward the front door, his voice snapping like the report of a rifle. Bud. And looking through the doorway, Miss Harlan saw Bud jump as though he had been shot. He appeared in the doorway, serious-faced and alert. Rustle some breakfast, quick, and hoe out that spare bedroom. Jump. Taylor understood perfectly what had happened, for he remembered what he had overheard between Carrington and Parsons on the train. To be sure, Miss Harlan knew nothing about the conversation, and so she mentally commended Taylor's quickness of perception, and felt grateful to him because he had spared her the horror of explaining further. She sat down again, aware of the startling unconventionality of this visit, and of the conversation that had resulted from it, but oppressed with no sense of shame, for it seemed entirely natural that she should have come to Taylor, though she supposed that was because he had been her father's friend, and that she had no other person to go to, not even if she went east to Westwood. But she would not have mentioned what had happened at the big house if Martha had not taken the initiative. She was startled over the change that had come in Taylor, watching him covertly as he stood near her, and following his movements as he walked around in the room, helping Bud, generously, leaving her to herself and her thoughts. She looked in vain for that gentleness and subtle thoughtfulness 
that hitherto had seemed to distinguish him. She had admired him for his easy-going manner, the slow deliberateness of his glances, the quizzical gleam of his eyes. But she saw him now, as many of the men in this section of the country had seen him, when he faced the necessity for rapid, determined action. It was the other side of his character. Before she heard his voice, and before she had seen him smile, the stern, unyielding side of him, which he had discovered always was ready for the blows of adversity and enmity, his fighting side. And when she went into the house to breakfast, feeling the strangeness of it all, of the odd fate which had led her to the arrow, the queer reluctance that affected her over the action in accepting the hospitality of a man who, except for his association with her father, was almost a stranger to her, she found that he did not intend to insinuate his presence upon her. He called her and stood near the table when she and Martha went in. Then he told her gravely that the house was hers and that he and Bud would live in the bunkhouse. And when you get settled, he told her, as he stood in the doorway ready to go, we'll write those articles of partnership. And, he added, don't you go worrying about Carrington. If he comes here, and Bud or me ain't here, you'll find a loaded rifle hanging behind the front door. Don't be afraid to use it. There's no law against killing snakes out here. End of chapter 17